The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 19, I'll back up just three verses for what we considered last week, the epic moment of the death of Jesus on the cross, and then we'll go forward for today's passage. John 19, I'll start at 28, but it's verses 31 to 37 we're especially looking at. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Father, as we consider these solemn things, May you bring truth that gives birth to joy and delight and liberty from these things when we receive them by faith. Help us, we pray, to speak them well and to understand them thoroughly. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you realize that you just sang... The hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. You may not know that you were singing a hymn that many consider to be one of the most despised hymns of the last three centuries. If you go to the hymn book of any liberal Protestant denomination, we used to call them mainline denominations, where the theology has been watered down and Christ has been devalued, you will not find that hymn, I'll guarantee you. Go and look. I won't name the denominations. You might be able to figure it out. Check in their 20th or 21st century hymnals. If their theology is primarily liberal, you will not find that hymn. 
And if you could question the editors of the hymn book and get an honest answer as to why you don't find it, they probably would say something like, why we don't believe anymore in that gory, offensive theology of blood. Well, the hymn we sang was written by a man named William Cooper, an interesting man. He was a poet. He never married. He was a friend of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and he actually lived with Mr. and Mrs. Newton for a while. And that was because William Cooper was a man prone to mental illness, particularly chronic depression. Although a wonderful poet, he's His poems are in some books of English verse. He was quite good. And he wrote a number of hymns that are in our book. But Cooper was chronically depressed, attempted suicide several times in his life, fortunately did not succeed in that. But there would be some who would write off his creation of a fountain filled with blood as the aberration of a sick mind. I most firmly disagree. It is, in fact, a cornerstone truth of the Christian faith. Now, it's John's gospel that gives us these next details that we have in John nineteen thirty-one to 37 about what happened with the body, the dead body of Jesus in the short time while it was there on the cross and had not yet been taken down. I don't know if we can even try to accurately picture it. Here's Jesus, immobile now, completely sunken down, not breathing anymore. His eyes are not open. His body is streaked with dirt and grime and blood, and the flies buzz around his head. John and a few of the women are still there watching and waiting. John was an eyewitness to everything that is told here. And Isaiah 53, verse 3, is now fulfilled, where the prophet had said he would be as one from whom we would hide our faces. He would be so despised and rejected of men. In other words, we wouldn't even want to look on him. Well, we must not quickly brush past these verses in a hurry to arrive at chapter 20 and the great good news of the resurrection, which we know is coming because we have the perspective of history that those at the cross did not yet have. They didn't know what chapter 20 was going to tell. We do. But I plead that we stay with these verses and not think ahead right now because we must not and cannot join those who have so diluted and sabotaged their doctrinal foundation, taking it away from Scripture, that the shed blood of Jesus Christ has no place in it as the only atonement sacrifice for sins in the sight of a holy God. This is taught by Scripture. And if we abandon this, as many have, we abandon the very core of what is required for true Christian salvation. Of all the many things Jesus said in his teachings, Matthew tells the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, and all the Gospels report his various teachings and parables and wonderful sayings that we can think of that we cling to and we find truth in. 
Here is Jesus, unable to speak at all. His body is dead. His brain is not functioning. And his mute, dead body is going to speak something today that I tell you is is as important as anything that ever came out of his mouth. First of all, I want you to see our text taking several further Scripture prophecies, joining them into one, and drawing from them a great truth that fulfills the Old Testament. This first point tells us of a climax of several prophetic fulfillments happening together as one, so that, as John says, you may believe by hearing about them. And those three things are the bones of Jesus not being broken, although they had every reason to be in that situation, a spear thrust into him cruelly and unnecessarily, and from that wound, blood and what John described as water or serum, clear fluid, gushing forth. We know that Roman practices of crucifixion made use of just about every aspect they could to both be cruel and to give a terrible lesson to those who observed. For that reason, much of the time, most of the time probably, they would leave bodies on the cross. Not only days, sometimes for weeks, until the crows or the vultures had finished their work. And they wanted to say to anyone who would pass by, and remember there's a sign there that says, this man was a thief, this man was a revolutionary, this man said he was king of the Jews. And someone would walk by and say, oh, I don't ever want to be a thief because I certainly don't want to end up like that. Well, we know that Jesus died on the preparation day for the Jewish high Sabbath of Passover. And we also know a minuscule command of God given through Moses in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that was in the minds of the Jewish leaders who had, you know, pressed for the crucifixion and manipulated Pilate all along the way. And they were really good at details, even if they weren't so good at not committing murder. But we have seen how legalistic things, they didn't want to step into Pilate's house because they would be ceremonially unclean for the Sabbath by going into a Gentile's house. Well, it's about like that what we have now when they remember Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three and said, which the, there says, if A criminal is executed on a tree. His body shall not remain there beyond the day on which he was killed. His body will be taken down, else it pollutes the land. It's a stain on the land. So they pressed that these three crucified men be removed from their scaffolds before sundown. The Sabbath began at sundown, only a few hours away. And Pilate was agreeable as long as the soldiers could say, each are dead. As often they didn't die that fast. Now you have to imagine probably a muscular soldier. I certainly never saw him, but I can only imagine that Roman soldiers were generally in good shape. I have a sledgehammer in my garage that I've used for putting stakes in the ground or occasional tasks, breaking something up once in a great while I have need for it. Three-foot hickory handle, heavy Steel, I guess it is, about the size of my two fists together. It's heavy. You swing that at something, you can do, if I go after your car with it, believe me, your car is going to be in bad shape. 
Well, that's probably something like what one of the soldiers had. If not that, perhaps an iron bar. But just imagine a Roman soldier, pretty good shape, pretty strong, coming up to these men. And, you know, the crosses were not as high as we envision. Most people think of, we have artist pictures and the crosses are way up in the air. All they had to do was get their feet off the ground. And quite possibly they weren't more than a foot or two above a man walking up. And so here's, here's the, the dead or nearly dead person, and his wrists and hands impaled, his feet impaled. He can't move, get out of the way, and somebody's coming with a sledgehammer. They had a name for it. The Romans called it the curifragium. You want the translation? Bone crusher. Somebody was coming with the bone crusher. In 1968, Israeli archaeologists actually discovered the skeleton of a man that was dated from the first century with one leg, all the bones smashed, the other leg, one major bone broken, the other one not. And they figured, here is a crucified man, almost for sure, who died by this way that we're seeing described here. Why do this? Believe it or not, it was actually an act of mercy. Sure doesn't sound like mercy if a sledgehammer hits your lower leg. But what it would do, of course, would be induce a a sooner death. Because you've got to boost yourself up to get your lungs raised and draw breath in. And if you can't do that anymore, you suffocate. So we have the crurifragium applied to two, but not the third victim at the cross. They came to Jesus, it says, and they ascertained he was already dead. These were soldiers used to battlefields. They saw dead people all the time. Yes, they weren't medical technicians, but they pretty much knew what dead was. And so in avoiding the breaking of Jesus' legs, Psalm 3420 was fulfilled. No bone of his should be broken. Well, The one nameless soldier still committed a sadistic act, whether he was motivated by efficiency, trying to say, I made absolutely sure he was dead, or it was just cruelty, just barbarity, and he had nothing better to do, and he took his spear and jabbed it into the side of Jesus. He did us a favor, actually, strange as that may seem, because he certainly ruled out the contentions of those who hold any form of a theory that says Jesus was taken off the cross and was not thoroughly dead when he was taken off. And that theory's been around for 20 centuries. Some know it as the swoon theory, which says that here was this body that had been tortured in every possible way. Soldiers had assumed it was dead. It had been stabbed in the side, but it was taken down, and Jesus was just in a severe coma, And so he revived in the cool stone tomb, and then he jumped up and moved a stone that took four or five men to put in place and trotted on out of the tomb. Pretty ridiculous, right? But there are people who believe that. I think this soldier's action certainly does away with any idea of that. Think of what what is happening here. These soldiers failed to break his legs as they were ordered to do, and then they went beyond orders and stabbed him with a spear. So by disobeying an order and then adding something of their own that they were not ordered to do, doing those things fulfilled Bible prophecy. Isn't that amazing? You know, these guys didn't say, now let's see, uh, you know, someday people are going to read about us here and, 
Uh, let's thumb the Old Testament, see if we've fulfilled all the prophecies that have to happen before the cross. Oh, one of us is supposed to stab him. How ridiculous. Of course not. These men had no awareness whatsoever that they were the instruments of the providence of God, even in their disobedience to Pilate's order to break the legs. They fulfilled prophecy. Now, there are two texts we're going to come to before I finish, and they are in Zechariah, little consulted book, but an interesting book. Zechariah, our, our missionary speaker, spoke on Zechariah last week. Zechariah 12, 10, and 13, 1, you mark, might mark down because I'm going to come to those. Prophecies of Jesus being pierced. But I'll get there. What about this flow of blood and water? The emphasis comes to that in the text. The spear went in, and John testifies there was a flow of blood and water from his side. Any physician knows that blood coagulates pretty quickly in a dead body. The heart is not beating to pump it around, and therefore, if you stab a dead body very long after death, it doesn't bleed very much. And so, for that reason, some people would say, well, this... John was saying there was a miracle that blood and fluid came out. I don't go with that, and most commentators do not, because we think it's certainly a natural enough phenomenon that a very recently dead body could produce this flow of blood and serum. John called it water. Physicians will explain this. Those of you with a medical background, I think, would say this is reasonable, because we know the heart has a a sac around it. And that sac contains fluid. It's the pericardium, and it has pericardial fluid. In fact, some physicians say when a person has been under severe exertions or severe stress like Jesus had been, the fluid in the pericardial sac tends to even swell more than normal. And it's perfectly reasonable to understand that that spear somehow penetrated. Perhaps the heart itself or a main aortic vessel but it penetrated that pericardial sac, and the water and the blood gushed out, a perfectly natural understanding. We need to be more concerned not of how it happened, but what does it mean? Because John here clearly sees something meaningful in this. And so secondly, I want to point you to that meaning, which is symbolic or spiritual, as John seems to emphasize that the composite happening of these three things, no broken bones, spear piercing him, blood and water coming forth, means something. In fact, I think John would have said, you know, it just fell into place for me, like the final shoe dropping. I realized the code language of the Old Testament and the Passover and the sacrificial system and everything just suddenly crystallized and made sense in his mind. Here in John 19.35, listen to John saying, He who saw this has borne witness, and his testimony is true. He knows he is telling the truth in order that you may also believe. John's talking about himself. We're 99% sure he's talking about himself because isn't that what he always does in this gospel? He always says, the disciple Jesus loved, the disciple who was at Jesus' right hand, He never says, I, John. He never uses a first-person pronoun. He always speaks of himself in the third person. He's doing that here. 
In other words, I, who witnessed this, am absolutely ready to, if, if John would have said such a thing, to put my hand on a stack of Bibles and declare to you that what I'm reporting, amazing as it sounds, is true, and it's here so that you would believe what I suddenly believed when I saw it. I used to puzzle over that statement in verse 35. Why was John so emphatic? You know, it was like he didn't expect to be believed. He said, please, believe me. I saw this. I'm telling you what is true. I saw the truths of the Old Testament coming together and suddenly exploding in the dead body of my Savior when I saw no bone broken, side pierced, blood and water. Call it an epiphany for John, if you will. One of those eureka moments when God revealed that which was true and and the man was amazed at what he was looking at. By the way, there's another such moment in the next chapter. Verse 8, 20 verse 8, when he came to the empty tomb, you know, it says there, he, he went in and he saw and believed. That was the resurrection eureka moment. I believe here, verse 35 in 19, was the cross eureka moment when John suddenly saw it all come together in his mind. And he says, the key is this. He leaves it for us to untangle, but he doesn't leave it a mystery. The key is that the cross of Jesus had occurred just as the Jewish Passover was beginning. For after all, that's why the Pharisees were rushing off. Got to get to Passover. We've done our killing for the day. Now it's time to be godly. Let's celebrate Passover. And we know that another fulfillment of the no bone of him broken comes from Exodus 12, 46, which says that no bone of the Passover lamb, interestingly enough, shall be broken in the preparation of the lamb. Little tiny detail. But doesn't it accord perfectly with what was true about the body of Jesus? And we know also that basic to the whole Passover celebration is the Bible's teaching many times over that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's what Passover was all about after all, right? You got an unblemished lamb. You didn't break its bones. You prepared it carefully. You took its blood, daubed it on the doorposts. And this, of course, happened when Israel were, were captives in Egypt. The Egyptians didn't do this. God didn't give them this instruction. And what happened to them? The firstborn of their households died in a sign of the wrath of God against the nation of Egypt. But those houses in Israel that took this sign of faith, this vivid lesson, and put the blood on the doorpost were passed over, and God preserved those lives as a sign of his salvation, salvation by the blood. So here's John. I, I just think it's like he woke up, you know, it's kind of, we, we were told in school that Isaac Newton supposedly discovered gravity when an apple hit him on the head. I'm not sure that that probably really happened, but it's something like that. Here's John beholding the dead body of Jesus and going, whoa, now I see. If the word eureka was in his vocabulary, he might have used it as he saw that Jesus fulfilled now All the requirements of every past Passover lamb, the thousands and thousands and thousands of them, 
that have been brought to the Lord in sacrifice over all those centuries. He remembered the fact that another John, John the Baptist, had once pointed to Jesus and said what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did John, the disciple, know what that meant when John the Baptist said it? Not really. Now he did. Now he understood. Here is God's final climactic Passover. And look, even the details are fulfilled in Jesus. Here is the offering in blood that will save us from the wrath of God, the shed blood of Christ. Repeatedly in Scripture is prescribed as God's ransom price. His death in place of ours. And this is corroborated by other witnesses. First Peter 1, 18, you heard it earlier in today's service, says this, you were ransomed. That ransom wasn't paid to Satan. The ransom was paid to God. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Once again, Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the witness of the New Testament fulfilling the Old Testament. A vivid demonstration by a mute body that could not speak, but it was speaking tremendous truth as the blood of Christ was realized by John as being of great importance for the forgiveness of sin. What about the water part? Did you wonder about that? Well, we've been many months studying John's gospel, and water has certainly had a big role in John. You went back and consulted a concordance for every time water is spoken— One commentator says with a bit of humor, he said, if you take the gospel of John and wring it, an awful lot of water comes out. Jesus, I am the living water, and so on. Uh, Many other things of that nature in John. Here is a speculation, but I think it's a true one, of how we are to understand the blood and the water as a symbol of a spiritual reality. Matthew Henry, commentator who said so many things well, said it more concisely than I can. He said, blood and water together stand for the two great benefits a believer receives from Christ, justification and sanctification. Blood symbolizes our atonement. We are justified, forgiven before God once and for all. Water implies our daily sanctification, our daily washing, the bathing of a disciple's feet, As we mature and go on with Christ, we need to be cleansed day by day. This dual meaning of blood and water spilled from the dead body of Jesus, you know, is captured in one of Christianity's other great hymns. And we're going to sing before we finish today. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be for sin the double cure cleansing me from its guilt and its power. There it is. It's guilt, once and for all forgiveness in justification, and it's power, the fact that sin still can affect me day by day if I'm not looking to God in repentance. John was surely an old man when he wrote this gospel. It was long after 
these things occurred. We think perhaps as much as 40 to 50 years after. And this was one of the last books. It was certainly the last gospel to be written. I try to picture the old Apostle John. Most of his fellow disciples of Jesus had died. We think he was the last one to live. I like to think of him, and I believe not inaccurately, weeping for sheer joy as he wrote this. As he thought about what came over him standing there at the cross, he was horrified, he was overcome with sadness, and yet God's insight exploded upon his soul. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Thanks be to God for what he has done here. I have seen this with my eyes. And he writes as an old man and says, Would you please take my word and believe this too? Look what God has done. So thirdly, I ask this question that I think arises from this text. Do we have the attitude of John as we look upon Christ by faith? It would be so easy to be depressed by this text I've read today. My goodness, someone's terrible death in absolutely awful circumstances, a person who's worthy of all admiration and praise, dying this way, how can you be at all up in your spirit after reading of this? Well, the truth is, this is a triumphant text. This is a text about salvation. And we go to Zechariah that I mentioned those two texts that are prophecies. Zechariah 12.10 prophesies a day that will come. Remember, before the New Testament gospel, this is being spoken, when the Lord would be pierced and people would look on him and mourn for him. The text says this, Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me whom they have pierced, they will mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep as one weeps for a firstborn. Now, that's not very hopeful sounding, but go a few verses farther to Zechariah 13.1, which looks further into the future and says, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The Old Testament saw the fountain that William Cooper wrote about and some people think is gory and offensive. A fountain filled with blood that cleanses our stains. If I ask you today if you are looking upon the one who was pierced by your sins, what would you say? Are you looking to Christ wounded for you? Are you looking to Christ knowing you put him there? You might have been, and in fact you really were, that Roman soldier with a spear in your hand. It was your sin that put him on that cross. And as his lifeblood was spilled out, it was done as a covering for you, offered if you will take hold of him in faith. The Scripture elsewhere says there's life for a look at this crucified Savior. But you need to know, before I close, one other thing that's not so positive, and that is that John also wrote the book of Revelation. And he hadn't forgotten about Jesus being pierced in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, 
when he spoke about the future coming of Jesus to history again, to bring history to a close, the day of the Lord. And he writes there and he says, Behold, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, John wrote, by the Holy Spirit speaking through him, will wail on account of him. That means if Jesus on the cross is not your blood atonement, is not your Savior cleansing you from sin, then that Christ as returning Lord on his judgment throne has no choice but to condemn you, and you will wail at the sight of it. So the question is, what have you done with the pierced one? Are you like John, excited, as he says in verse 35, I discovered this is true. Please believe me. John is pleading with you in verse 35. Believe this wonderful thing, not spoken from the mouth of Jesus, but preached by his wounds. What have you done with him? Are you excited about trusting in this one as John was? If so, I hope you will tell him so today, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time. By your own cries of reverent trust, deep praise, and unbridled joy. Our Father, thank you for the gospel preached even by the dead body of Jesus. Truly, it is a wonderful thing. Amazing. We can't comprehend it. We couldn't have authored it or invented it but we behold it with wonder and thanks and praise. Father, humble us constantly before this, our great Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.